Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning. Brian Mazurowski here with you on WBEN until 10 o'clock. A lot to get to today on the show, including some news that happened uh, late late in the day. I was going to say late last night. Late last night to me because I go to bed early, (laughs) like, you know, way earlier than everybody else. Uh, Probably wasn't that late to you. But we had this news from the state, the governor announcing, um, you you know, what to a lot of people is mostly about the stadium that they plan on. uh, They're, you know, going to put up in some way, shape or form. And we'll get to that later. Six hundred million dollars as their contribution toward a new Bill Stadium in Orchard Park. Four hundred eighteen million dollars of that, according to the governor, will now come from money from the Seneca Nation. Uh, the state's share of 25% of slot machine revenues from casinos in Buffalo, Niagara Falls, and Salamanca from 2017 to 2021. That money, um, in total, $418 million is the state share. In total, it's $564 million. You know, some of that is going to Niagara Falls, Buffalo, Salamanca, uh, other communities and counties. And that was uh, given back to the state after a dispute that spanned about five years. And after the state over the weekend froze the bank accounts of many in the Seneca Nation, who for a few days couldn't access their money because of the state's actions. Uh, You know, to help kind of go through this a little bit, brought on a special guest, John Kane, Native American activist, host of Let's Talk Native, joins me now here on WBEN. John, it's been a long time since we talked. Uh, how's it going? Well, uh, there's never a lack of things to talk about when it comes to New York State and uh, some of what uh, this relationship with the Seneca Nation and others have been. So um, I guess it's going well. At least nobody's wrestling around on the bottom of the casino floor like uh, your staff, I guess. Yeah. Um, you, you know, this issue, it's there's it's multifaceted. There's so many things. I, I struggle to figure out uh, where to really begin with this. But, you, you know, let's begin with the dispute itself. I, I mean, this is longstanding, and it basically is over language in that initial compact that kind of gave an out 
almost that if the two sides didn't agree to extend and keep this agreement going where part of these slot machine revenues would go to the state and other communities, that that could end after a certain period of time. And that was in dispute, went to the courts. The language in the compact itself was a little murky. And, John, I was actually surprised, um, you know, court after court ruling ruled in favor of New York State on this. I had been told by legal experts, uh, you know, who know much more than I do in the past, that the precedent for that had been if there was ambiguity in a compact between whether it's the state, the federal government, some, you know, U.S. government entity, and a Native American tribe, that that decision would go to the Native American tribe, that that was kind of the, the precedent that was in place. That's not what happened here, and it's led to this very long and ugly dispute. Well, can I explain, you know, frame it a little differently than perhaps you have, um, if you don't mind? Okay. Well, first off, let, let me back one thing up a little bit. Everybody throws the number 25% around. That 25% is 25% of the net slot drop. And what that means is it's 25% of the money that comes into a slot machine minus the payout. That 75% has to cover all of the overhead of the, uh, of the operation. So that 25% of the net slot drop is actually closer to 50% of the net revenue of a slot machine. So that number always sounds like, oh, yeah, it's only 25%. The Senate get to keep 75%. No, they don't. They've got to run the entire operation out of that 75%. In other words, John, you know, it's what you hear when people talk about this sports betting and everyone talks about the uh, amount of money placed on bets and they're like, wow, how much money the state has taken in. It's, whoa, 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 that's, that's the money going in. That's not factoring in the money that gets paid out to the people who place the bets and then everything thereafter. You're saying this is something similar. Well, I mean, the, the Seneca's got to cover the cost of the machines, the casino, the staff, the the cocktail waitresses and waiters, the, you know, the, the renovations, the, the licensing, their legal, their finance, everything. I mean, so what, by the time you take all of the operational expenses out of the 75%, the Senecas only get about the same amount that the, the state does. And you know what? The Senecas are going to build the damn thing. They put this huge investment up, and the, and the, and the state gets, gets essentially the same share that they do. So I wanted to address that. Now, again, a lot of this conversation is, is tied to this alleged – ambiguity but you know what ambiguity says when the when the language like you said is murky but there was no murky language here there was no language there's no language in the extended period of the compact when the compact was renewed with the automatic renewal there's no mention of either the percentage or the time period that payments should be made there was i mean it, it was clear in the first 14 years in fact it was 18 percent in the first couple of years of the net slot drop and then it was 22% for the next five years of the net slot drop, and then it was 25% over the, 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 the last seven years of that 14-year period. But there is no language. There's no ambiguous language. There's no language at all. And I'm glad you mentioned you know, um, this idea of ambiguity as it relates to Native people. This is, this is a, a standard in law. It's called the Canons of Statutory Construction as it relates to Native people. And it says any treaty, any law, and any contract that with native people that is that is, in, that is amb ambiguous is supposed to be read in favor of the native people and that's that's just standard law that's that's again that's the canon of statutory construction so these two non-native arbitration judges not only essentially um create this elaborate sense of ambiguity 
But then they violate the canons of statutory construction by ruling for the state over this inventive ambiguity that, that they claim existed. So so there, that's the, the problem, okay? That's the problem with the arbitration. Now, as far as all the court stuff, I mean, see, the courts never che- never looked at that. The, all, the only thing the courts were looking at was whether they could involve themselves after the Senecas and the state were involved in binding arbitration. And because of binding arbitration, it actually, pro, you know, essentially prohibits. It's kind of like these, you know, all of these um, agreements that people have to sign when, <laughs> when they go to work someplace, that they, that they commit themselves to binding arbitration and they can't even sue an employer or whatever else. So that's, you know, that's what the situation is. But here's the thing. There's two issues here. There's the compact. And I will sit there and I'll tell you right now that as far as I'm concerned, the state didn't violate, didn't violate the compact in the first 14 years um, because they put slot machines and all that other stuff in the racetracks and everything else. I think this arbitration ruling is terrible because here's what, the, here's what the exclusivity really was. It wasn't an exclusivity for gaming. It was only very specific that the state could not employ class three slot machines in western New York. That's that was the prohibition. But you know what? That wasn't a concession by the state. The state couldn't do it anyway. The law prohibited it. They couldn't build class three casinos for that 14 years. Well, actually, in the last couple of years of that uh, of that first term, they changed their 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 state constitution. But the the first class three casino didn't open up until that 14 year period was over. And you know what? Delago, which is in the Seneca's gaming market, although it's outside of the exclusivity zone. They are not, aren't that profitable. They can't even make their uh, their finance payments. They're all paying interest payments, and they're probably behind on that because of COVID. So, John, you, you would think when this next compact expires in, what, a year, um, that it would look much different from the Seneca's perspective? Well, I don't even think we're there yet, and it's, uh, it'll be at the end of 2023. Look, what the state did here in, in freezing the, the Seneca Nation accounts and jeopardizing thousands of people's um, livelihoods, you know, is, is a travesty. And now Kathy Holcomb wants to turn around and paint herself as a hometown hero by saying, yes, I robbed the Senecas, but I'm giving it back to, uh, to Western New York for their stadium. You know, the Senecas would have rather invested in that stadium directly instead of having to fight with uh, Cuomo, Holcomb, or anybody else, or frankly, the mayors of, these, uh, of the two cities um, that, that they're involved in. But she, 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 she could have just swept the account a dedicated account that she knew what it was. She, she knew the account number and everything. I mean, she couldn't have just taken the money. But instead, she, she decided she was going to hold the Seneca Nation hostage. I mean, this is, by definition, extortion. I mean, this, this wasn't uh, a payment. This, was a, this wasn't a revenue sharing. This was a ransom payment. And then she paints herself as a the, as the hero, which is, which is pretty, I mean, look, it, it's terrible. And, you know, look, we we go through this cycle of uh, you know of what Native people have experienced in terms of racism against uh, you know against policies and everything else you know and a lot of people would like to say that the Republicans have a monopoly on racism I got to tell you Hochul's a Democrat Cuomo's a Democrat and you know what the Interior Secretary who has sat there quietly and silently over the years she's a Democrat too so I'm not saying this is a plug to Republicans but look we have a problem. And we have a problem is that we don't get a fair shake. 
And I'm glad that you invited me on the program because the media has been terrible. The Buffalo News has been the worst. You know, to to one thing at a time, John, and I want to kind of look at this problem, this freezing of accounts that that happened over the weekend, that is something that, you know, listen, this has been in the news more and more. We saw this in Canada with the protests they were having that the government, you know, all of a sudden had this ability to freeze accounts of people who, you know, might have been, you know, might have shared a name with somebody who might have been protesting in the streets over uh, something the government did. I, this is something that I, I would think could unite people a little bit because it's scary that with the press of a button, all of a sudden, uh, what, a group of people, one person in particular, uh, however many people, all of a sudden they can't get their money. Well, yeah, it is scary. The idea that this kind of overreach, I mean, look, the money was sitting in one account and they freeze all the accounts. I mean, that'd be like, you know, that'd be like anybody who owes a debt to to, to the state for whatever. It'd be like saying if you if your, uh, your easy pass payments are overdue that they freeze your entire account. I mean, come on. I mean, th- that's, that's how much of an overreach this really was. And, and then it really should be something that, that anybody who is somewhat suspect of the government should be alarmed about. And here's the other thing about that. According to the compact, this um, a, a refusal to pay after arbitration should enforce New York State to go into federal court to have that, that money uh, uh, paid over. Instead, they used the New York State statute. So even New York State violated the compact because if you read the language of the compact, it talks about binding arbitration and that it can't be fought in federal court. However, if the payment, any payment that uh, that is in dispute, the the winner of that arbitration ruling can force that payment to because arbitration can't take money, but courts can, and so the vehicle for the state to have seized that money should have been federal court, and they didn't. They used this broader New York statute that allowed them to to freeze all the accounts. I mean, it's, it's it really is a travesty. John, you mentioned the media coverage, and you know it's. I have had a problem with how this story has been covered for a number of years, not so much because of what anybody has said, um, anything in particular that's been written, but by just kind of the framing of this story, um, which happens subtly. I, I don't even think it's on purpose, but it's the way this story has been portrayed over the last several years, which is to say that it's an us versus them and that's how it always seems to be set up you know um when the state wins something in court it it is kind of subtly framed as you know we won the you know the state is victorious over the senecas and i always want to say hold on a second wait this is this is not you know the u.s and russia these are your neighbors these are western new yorkers uh, and, and we're talking about it like it's two warring countries, and that has got to stop, John. Well, I mean, and, and, and it gets even worse because one of the, the overall public sentiment is uh, is based on a misbelief, and that misbelief is that the Senecas can do gaming because the state allows them to do it, and that's why the Senecas have to pay the state, and which is totally false. There is, according to the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, the state can't impose a fee on the on the Senecas for gaming. What they can do is they can offer a concession, and that concession has to be a substantial benefit to the business. And for that, the Senecas can provide revenue sharing. So, 
the state isn't entitled to any money unless they give something up. And as I talked about earlier, the state really didn't give up anything. And in fact, to the extent the state could compete against the Senecas by their own laws, regardless of the compact, they did. They expanded lottery during that period of time. They, they're ever renewing more and more scratch-offs. Uh, they, they turned their racetracks, their failing horse racetracks, into, into casinos. And, yeah, and then, then, of course, they changed their constitution so they could be casino uh, licensors. And, and, of course, now sports betting is almost becoming an epidemic problem. When you, when you consider that you can now bet in the, in the comfort of your home and, and, and under a New York state license um, with, with sports betting, I mean, at some point, this proliferation of gaming, I mean, the Seneca Nation has to realize that their gaming market is going to diminish regardless of, this, of being you know, um, squeezed by the state because the, the market is being squeezed by the state. They are ever-expanding. But, you, but you're right. This whole idea of us and them, let me, let me pose this. In the 14 years of the original uh, compact, $1.4 billion was given up in, in this revenue sharing. A billion of it left Western New York. Look, we listened to, to Andrew Cuomo for his entire administration, pretty much, boast about the Buffalo billion, the billion dollars that's coming to Buffalo. Well, how did that work out? I'll tell you where the Buffalo billion is. The Buffalo billion is the billion dollars that got sucked out of Western New York. And it never came back. Four four hundred million came back, but a billion dollars left Western New York. And I and I gotta say, let some uh, economics major do an assessment on the harm that a billion dollars leaving Western New York has done. So as Byron Brown is sitting there with his hand out, waiting for uh, you know a hundred million dollars to come his way, or Paul Dyser or, or, or Rostino or anybody else. Are you even considering the fact that a billion dollars is leaving your Western New York economy? Because if the bubble billion was supposed to be a good thing, then how is the the sucking sound of a billion dollars leaving Western New York not a bad thing? Hey, John, appreciate the time this morning, and thanks for uh, taking out with us. Uh, you know, good to talk with you again. And it's oh, it, it, it's you too. And feel free to give me a call. And uh, and I, I look, I'd love to. This isn't over yet, by the way, because there's still the question of the payments going forward through the rest of this year, and, of course, the, uh, the, the new compact negotiations that, uh, that are going to ensue for what goes on beyond 2023. All right, so not over yet. John Kane, a Native American activist, host of Let's Talk Native, uh, joining me here on BMAS and Beamer on WBEM. What, what do you think about this? The state uh, will pay, you know, uh, on the surface, you get, hey, you're worried about how the state is going to pay for a new stadium well, you know, we're uh, $600 million. That's our share. Well, you know, we'll cut that down because over $400 million is just poof, uh, you know, just wound up in our Venmo account from this casino money that we've been waiting on for a number of years. On the other hand, how did they get that money? Freezing the accounts of people in the Seneca Nation so they couldn't access any of their own personal money? With the click of a button? It's a little heavy-handed. It's a little something to worry about. 803-0930 to join me today. Brian Mazarowski with you here on WBEN. Welcome back. Brian Mazarowski here with you until about 10 o'clock this morning. Uh, talking about an announcement made later in the day yesterday, where we now know how the state is planning on paying for most of its part of the new Bills Stadium. 
$564 million from the Seneca Nation, from slot machines going to the state. It's part of a long-standing gaming compact dispute. The state now has that money. $418 million of those dollars will go toward constructing the Buffalo Bills Stadium, according to Governor Kathy Hochul. But it brings a whole host of issues, and, you know, a lot of them on the money itself, on the compact itself. If you missed our first part of the show, we were speaking with John Kane, a fierce Native American advocate on this issue. And, you know, touched on him, a part of which, look, this isn't me um, passing along this message, but this is a lot of bright legal minds who have said, and, you know, John articulated it well uh, about the precedent in place, the the legal precedent that when there is a compact between a government entity and a Native American tribe, that the law typically errs on the side of the Native Americans. That's what's been in place for years and years. And it didn't this time. And I think a lot of people found that a little strange. And we're surprised when the first court ruling went down. What should happen with this money? 803-0930 to join me here on WBEN. We'll go to the phones. George, you're in Amherst now. You're on WBEN. Uh, what do you think when you hear about this money? $564 million going now from the Seneca Nation to New York State. Well, I honestly think uh, New York State's greedy. And uh, they should let the Indians have the money. We took so much from them. This is me off. It really does. I mean, what do we do to them? Hey, George, appreciate the call. You know, I, I I think a lot of people would have that sentiment, especially in the current landscape. Back in 2017, it's a little bit different than comparing it to right now. And John was making this point of the proliferation of gaming. And it's not just about a casino, a physical casino, but gambling everywhere. You can buy lottery tickets on your phone, even scratch-off tickets. You can now go on your phone and bet on any game. I can bet on the Sabres to score three goals tonight if I wanted to. You can do all these things, and they're through New York State. It's a different landscape than it was in 2017, where the state was more or less passing it off as, listen, we are allowing you to let people gamble here, and as part of that, you know, some of the proceeds has to go here. And now it's a little more, well, gambling is everywhere. And if we're operating a casino, shouldn't we get to hold on to that money that we're making? 803-0930, we'll go to Kathy. Kathy, what are you thinking when you hear about this sum of money being transferred over? I'm really furious because since the day Christopher Columbus set foot on Indian land, also known as America now, we have abused the Native American people. We've murdered them. We took everything they had. We took their way of life, their culture, their lives, their land. 
And now in 2022, when they have their feet under them, they're functioning, they're making money, now the state of New York wants them to pay us for the privilege of doing business on the very land that we stole from them. And we and, and New York wants them to pay money on the money on the money that I spend in their casino that I already paid tax on. Kathy, to me, almost in this situation, given what's happened over the past week, the money it's almost secondary. That the state froze Seneca bank accounts, not allowing them to access any money at all through uh, basically a mechanism they have claiming that, well, they owe us a debt. So, you know, we can go to KeyBank and say, hey, freeze this account. I mean, that's scary, not just for the Senecas, but I think for everybody. What do we what do they owe us for? What do they owe New York State for? The privilege of operating a facility on their own land that and then what they do on their land it's like you telling me i've got to pay you to cook hamburger on my stove in my kitchen with the gas that i pay for why would i have to pay new york state for that kathy i appreciate the call you kind of do uh (laughs) right i mean if you buy the uh, buy the materials, you're going to pay a tax on it. Um, you run a business of any kind, you do pay some sort of tax on it. The difference here being there, you know, these businesses operate in New York State, and the casinos, a lot of these other businesses, will be operating on sovereign territory. I, you know, to me, the the money is secondary. The I, I'm still very confused at how you get to this point with that precedent that was in, in place, you know, uh, that we don't err to the side of the Native Americans in any sort of dispute over a compact. To me, all of that is secondary to what happened a few days ago with the freezing of Seneca accounts. I mean, that from here... To when the Canadian government took that authority and was able to do the same thing to protesters, uh, basically under the, for, for no reason other than they disagreed with the stance of the government. I mean, that was part of their reasoning, right? You heard Justin Trudeau, unacceptable views. And because he doesn't agree with the protests going on outside, all the su- all of a sudden you have assets frozen. People can't buy a gallon of milk. Now that's the thing I look at and say, uh, you know, that person hiding a bunch of money under their bed is not as crazy as they seemed five years ago. If all your money is a number on a cell phone, You've seen quite a few examples over the past few months of the ability of that to go poof. And, yeah, that's something I think a lot of people should be paying attention to. You know, as for the money itself, 
you know, if you take all of that out of consideration, I do wonder what this does to the people downstate complaining and complaining and complaining about this Bill Stadium deal. I mean, how do you, if you are a New York City state assemblyman, how do you now complain about money going to a stadium if that money is just coming from Buffalo, Niagara Falls, Salamanca casinos that you didn't have to begin with? I think it's a little tougher to complain if you're Assemblyman Ron Kim from Queens, who was uh, on a tirade yesterday on Twitter, profane language and everything, over not being included in any negotiation for the Bills Stadium. And, and, you know, it does go against something we were talking about with Kevin Hardwick earlier this morning. where there is a big difference between public funding and public financing, and people should know the difference before they just are hammered over the head over and over and over with people wrongly saying that the state is taking money from some other program and handing it over like Operation Dumbo Drop to the Pagulas right in front of the stadium, just like a a crate full of cash. No, because that is not what's happening. There's the way this lease agreement works. I, the state wouldn't even have to just give this four hundred million to a stadium right away, because what usually happens in a deal like this is the it goes into a bond. It, it's paid through. Revenue streams that are dedicated to it eventually. The state isn't gifting the Pagulas $600 million. I mean, that's not how it works. And I've, I've seen that so many times over the past couple of days. And you started to see it a lot yesterday. New York Post, New York Times. Downstate, I saw you know someone in Seattle commenting on it. Oh, the state is giving money. Oh, and, and they cut money going to another. No, well, no, they didn't actually. If you knew what you were talking about, there wasn't a cut being made. But to act like the state is just uh, giving and plopping a big pile of cash on the doorstep of one bill's drive is not an accurate picture of what's going on. If somebody's telling that to you, they're being facetious or they don't know what they're talking about. The state is financing the project, not funding it. Now, again, that might change with this Seneca revenue announcement. But generally speaking, all these stadium deals, they use a bonding ability the state has to borrow money at a rate that no private entity is getting. That gets repaid over time from revenues taken from the team. So at the end of the day, 
the state pays basically what it's taking in in tax dollars from player salaries and everything else. And assuming the deal is done right, the net outcome is not a loss for the state. The net outcome should be positive for the state as it appears to be, I mean, without the full framework of a deal, but going through all those numbers we say over and over again, it appears to pay the state back in just over 20 years. And that's how the process works. It's not dropping off a huge sum of money right on the door of a stadium. Now, someone might have to tell that to that uh, Ron Kim assemblyman, state assemblyman. He's in Queens. Now, he said he wants to leave this whole deal out of the state budget. And he wants the assembly, the Senate in the state over in Albany to hold public hearings and vote on the stadium deal as a standalone measure. And all I have for Ron Kim... who says that they're trying to shove it in in the last hour of the budget, all I have for Ron Kim is, okay, you want a standalone measure, completely separate, to talk about what would amount to 0.3% of the state's budget. I hope you're calling for a a standalone hearing on the other 99.7%. And not just grandstanding, because a politician would never do that. I hope you're not just grandstanding and trying to get your name in papers by throwing your arms in the air just because it's a stadium deal for the Buffalo Bills. I hope you're going with a a fine-tooth comb through every line of that budget. Because believe it or not, this, this ends up being a small part of the budget. I hope you're looking at, you know, the $25 billion over five years that's going to go to affordable housing and saying, well, hang on a second, let's make sure we're getting our money's worth and that this doesn't actually amount to every unit of housing being uh, costing the state $250,000. I hope that's what's happening behind this. I expect to see Ron Kim's name in just about every single article that involves state funding now because if he's concerned about this, Well, he should be concerned about everything else, too. John Warrow, the Associated Press, earlier this morning, I mean, really early this morning, he gets up or stays up even earlier than I'm up. You know, he tweeted this about some of the pushback that the stadium deal is getting. He tweeted, uh, one of the harder parts of the Bill's stadium story is explaining to big city metropolis people How Buffalo isn't a big city metropolis, and it becomes somewhat of an exception to a number of the accepted theories. And when he asks sports economists about funding for stadiums and saying that they generally don't generate money locally, that might apply to a big market, but in Buffalo, where people come from miles away to attend games, stay for the weekend, come from a different country, and stay for a few hours or the entire weekend to go to a game, that's a little bit different. And in a market as small as Buffalo, when you're talking about not a stadium, but the entire team and the impact that the loss of the team could have, not necessarily the impact of where they play, 
it is entirely different. And I can't help myself. So, you know, me and my snottiness is, you know, no, I, I actually enjoy people in New York City and Seattle telling me that the bills have no impact because, you know, I'm just a dummy from Western New York. I wouldn't know any better. I'm from small town Western New York. I just don't understand the economics of NFL teams in communities. Leave it to us in New York City, over in Seattle, in, in Berkeley, to tell you the impact that the Bills have on a community. And that's the one thing I'll push back on. And whether it's Ron Kim or any of these other uh, papers that are writing about the stadium deal and how rotten it is, and they're writing completely wrongly, uh, it's an untruth to frame it which I saw again today, uh, it was an Associated Press piece, ironically, given uh, you know John Warrow's tweets. It wasn't him writing this, but that the state is just handing over hundreds of millions of dollars to the team, which is not an accurate depiction of what's going on. I'm not going to stand by as somebody from Western New York and have somebody from Queens who wants to get their name in the paper make the decisions for this community without understanding anything about it. And they can complain all they want, but I hope everyone knows here and across the state and across the country that when you read something about this stadium deal inside the New York Times, inside one of these you know big city papers, You hear something on the national news. Maybe John Oliver will make fun of us. They don't know a thing about Western New York or about how this impacts Buffalo. They don't know. They don't even know a thing about the deal that they're writing about. But please, more of that. You know, they they need to explain big city people so much smarter than us here in Western New York. That's their attitude. That's the attitude of Ron Kim. Tweet storm yesterday. Anyways, thanks for hanging out with me. If uh, you missed that interview with John Kane, check it out. It'll be up shortly at WBEN.com in the podcast tab. And I'll be back here tomorrow on WBEN. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.